Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Erling Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now, and listeners get 10% off when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. On May 2nd and 3rd, FlatMap Oslo is taking place in Oslo, Norway. FlatMap Oslo is a conference about functional programming, mainly on the JVM. The call for speakers is now open. Talk submissions are accepted until April 3rd, and the day after FlatMap Oslo, the Type Level Summit is taking place. Please visit 2016.flatmap.no for information about the call for speakers, Type Level Summit, and to register. Please use code GEEKERY when registering for 10% off. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. The speakers have recently been announced, and make sure to visit lambdaconf.us to find out more and to keep an eye out and to register. PolyConf 2016 will be taking place on the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. The call for proposals is now open and will be taking submissions through the 13th of March. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with the news as more details become available and visit eventtill.com slash events slash polyconf-16 to submit your talk proposal. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them into my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Brooklyn Zelenka. Brooklyn, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm a developer based out of Vancouver, Canada, for now. And I also run a couple of meetups in Vancouver. I run uh, Code & Coffee, which is very informal. I run the Vancouver Functional Programming Meetup and Vancouver Erlang and Elixir. And also recently just started a, a small consultancy, just four of us, specializing in functional programming in Vancouver called Robot Overlord. So I got to meet you at LambdaConf last year. And there's another one coming up, which I don't think I'll make. But it was you at that point were talking about your Vancouver FP user group and getting into Haskell and looking at abstract data types. So for anybody who caught that episode, that's kind of what we were covering about just at a high level because it was a small little mini interview with a bunch of different people. So wanted to catch up with you and see what you've been up to since then. Because as you said, you've started more user groups. You started as a consultancy. You've got a lot of stuff going on. So I want to just kind of catch up and see how things have been going and what you've learned and where things have been going since then. So last time we talked during that mini interview, you were into Haskell and digging into some of the higher level abstract data types and making sure you got your head around them and pushing the bounds with some of the advanced topics. So How did that work out? Because you've said you've now started doing some Elixir and Erlang user groups. And where was that transformation like? And going from Haskell and now picking up and working with some Erlang and Elixir. Yeah, so Haskell is still definitely my favorite language by far. The interest in Elixir really came from... So I'd looked at Erlang a little bit a few years ago. Thought it was really cool, very pragmatic. But now with Elixir, 
a lot of people from the Ruby world are moving over into largely because of the syntax and because of Phoenix moving into the Elixir world or, or at least having some interest in it. And I thought this might be a great way to get some, you know, this large group of Rubyists over into functional programming land. And so I uh, started that back in, I guess, October-ish. So we've had a few meetups since then, and it's been an interesting mix of people who've kind of heard about this Elixir thing sort of vaguely and other people who've been working deeply with Erlang for 20 years. So it's, it's cool. We start to see a little bit of mentorship happen too, which is really nice. And some of the people from the Elixir and Erlang group have started coming to the general functional programming meetup as well. VanFP has a little bit more of a closure Haskell bent to it just because of who tends to show up, but hopefully we'll get more Elixir stuff in there too. And then and other languages as well. Hopefully we're going to have some talks on logic programming in the next, uh, ho- hopefully in February, maybe March. So yeah, yeah. Going back a little bit too. So you'd mentioned that I was looking at generalized algebraic data types, which is always a mouthful to say back at LambdaConf. Yeah, those have really, um, I found those really interesting during that talk. I'd heard about them a little bit before, played with them a little bit. But that talk really helped me kind of focus my attention, my understanding of it. And since then, I've also been looking more deeply into Idris, which I think is very, very cool. I wouldn't, you know, proclaim to be an Idris expert by any means. But it's just like how people say, you know, learning Haskell is going to improve your programming in all these other languages because it's going to bend your mind a little bit and make you think outside of the box. Feels really the same thing with Idris again, just even more so. You know, having a full dependent type system is really cool. So yeah, that is my long rant. (laughs) And you're all over the place with functional programming languages. And I mean that in a good way, where you've managed to kind of get a lot of exposure to a bunch of different languages, be it only through the Vancouver FP and other things of takes and things people have talked about there. But in addition to that, just reaching in and researching a bunch of languages. So I guess we kind of jumped forward a little bit. So let's jump back is for those who didn't listen to it. And I don't know that we got to dig into it real deep. What was your background coming from in getting into functional programming languages? Because when I talked to you, you were digging into Haskell and you were really enjoying it. And you just said that was so far your favorite language yet, but what was your journey into functional programming languages and where did you come from? Before I got to talk to you at LambdaConf, for anybody else who's just catching up with you. Yeah, so I have a bit of a uh, non-traditional background getting into programming. I started as a music theorist and at the, the upper levels of music theory, it becomes math, really. You do a lot of matrix work and touch on a little bit in category theory, not super deeply, and we don't, you know, use the right terminology and stuff, but enough that you're making these sorts of transformations and these these sorts of ways of thinking, and doing similar sorts of operations. So when I started learning to program just, you know, HTML, JavaScript, you know, etc, I discovered that there was this other area. And was working with somebody who was a, a big fan of Common Lisp. And so picked up Common Lisp, discovered it was based on this thing called Lambda Calculus. So dove into untyped Lambda Calculus and typed Lambda Calculus, and then started teaching myself just a little bit of category theory and discovered that there was this Haskell thing. And it really scratches the same part of my brain as music theory did, which sounds completely bizarre because you think you're like, well, music's this, you know, artsy thing and you just kind of, you know, express your soul. 
Whereas high school is going to be, you know, still very expressive, but you're trying to achieve the school. But at least to me, they feel very, very similar. Um, so, so yeah, kind of in my spare time for four years, I guess, five, maybe five years now, been playing with high school in my spare time. And then just getting, you know, really curious about all the other, well, I mean, programming languages in general, but especially functional languages, you know, spending some time in Clojure, which is also really nice. It's what we're seeming to start to standardize on at the consultancy at Robot Overlord. You know, Elixir right now is very cool and, you know, very approachable. And I have mostly a Ruby background. So even though the actual language itself is very different, I can go in and borrow a lot of concepts from especially Clojure and the little bit of Erlang that I looked at. And then also have the Phoenix is definitely based on Rails. So being able to sort of marry those two backgrounds is really nice. And then also kind of taking a look around at all the different ways people are solving the same problems that functional programming is trying to solve, right? You know, we're looking at trying to fundamentally control states and keep things as expressions as opposed to instructions. And, you know, there's a list of whatever, seven or eight items that functional programming is trying to solve. And all these languages have very different ways of doing that, right? You know, working in Elixir is very different than working in Haskell, which is very different than working in Clojure, but they're all fundamentally functional programming languages and they're solving the same sorts of, I wouldn't say pains in, uh, in programming, but they have the same sort of tact to it. So I want to dig in just a little bit because you said you came from music theory and then you started doing web pages with HTML and JavaScript and mm-hmm. got introduced into common list from someone you knew. How did that yeah. kind of transformation go to what brought you into programming in general? And then if you're playing with HTML and JavaScript and then you're throwing this kind of theoretical curveball of common lisp which is kind of javascripty depending on how you get in like javascript has some of those traits depending on how you got into mm-hmm. javascript but usually yeah. it's functional programming is a different way than what most people are teaching how did that kind of progression look like in the way of thinking from a music theorist coming into programming in general and then having to make that leap back into functional programming did that make what was that transition like did it make sense from the functional programming side based off your music theory background or what was that transformation looking like? Yeah. So I started programming because I joined a startup and you had to sort of be a a jack of all trades, joined more on the, you know, the graphic design end of things. I had done a little bit of graphic design back in music school just for pamphlets and that sort of thing. So sort of like, well, maybe I could take that skill and apply it. And then just sort of discovered that, you know, even with JavaScript, that this was something that I seems to be, relatively good at and that I really enjoyed. So the colleague I had that introduced me to Lisp was, I mean, one, she was really interested in Lisps in general, right? So it was one of those like really infectious, excited people about that. But I was burning through, let's say, Owen O'Reilly book every week or 10 days. So I was just reading a, a large amount of material anyway, and picking up, say, even The Little Schemer, right, was extremely well-written, entertaining book, and learning a a different way of doing things, which was nice. I've also found that teaching people with no programming background whatsoever, starting with functional programming, they seem to get it very quickly, as opposed to having to unlearn a whole bunch of other programming from before. I think largely because it feels closer to the sort of math that we do in school. Right. You know, you can't re- just reassign variables all over the place in an equation. Right. 
or at least not in the the type that we learn. So because it was so early on in my um, in my career, in my progression, it just felt very natural and I, I really gravitated towards it. I also liked the cleanliness that I got out of some of these ways of structuring code because working in JavaScript, especially early on in your career, you know, you tend to, to produce these, you know, huge reams and reams of imperative code and it gets gets messy very quickly as opposed to, you know, sitting back and thinking about your program from a structural perspective is, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. It's, I, I would, yeah, I would go as far as to say, you know, it's, it's liberating in a lot of ways because now you have all these, you know, little recomposable pieces that you can stick back together, which isn't to say that you can't do that in, say, JavaScript. You can, but it's easier to not. And so before I developed that discipline, working through some of the Lisp stuff even immediately started to improve my JavaScript code. Yeah, coming from a music theory background, in music theory, you tend to think about things very structurally, right? So you can look at an entire symphony and reduce it out to you know, a handful of notes, two or three notes of the, the major structural points, and then fill it in multiple layers in. And you start looking at all the surface level detail, how it relates to this larger structure. And so you'll often get the same structure in a small phrase as you do over this you know, hour and a half piece. And then thinking in the structural way, you know, even recursively, just kind of it felt very similar. And I hadn't been able to do any music theory professionally, because you can only really do that independently or as a professor at a university. So it, it was nice. It, it definitely scratched that same part of my brain. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to describe how it would feel the same without, without somebody else having a similar background. But it's surprising the number of music theorists who go on to become programmers. It seems to be a very high percentage. So there has to be something in there. And I've just barely scratched the surface of music theory. Just being in band in high school, I kind of had a teacher who was kind of pushing more music theory, but then just reading about different stuff. And one of the books I read was titled, This Is Your Brain on Music. And it's interesting. And it, I got a bit of more of a hint of some of that music theory about how the mathematics and the pattern matching that your brain establishes with the theory and Expecting if you go up, you come back down based off the ways we've been trained over the years. And so I don't have that background, but I've peeked behind the curtain just enough where I can see where that someone with that background, when they say that, that makes sense to me, that there seems to be something there. So you get into common lists, you get into functional programming, and then you find Haskell from your Lambda calculus and all this. Mm -hmm. That still seems a little bit of a jump from the Lispy style world and dynamic style world into the hard tractable types and purity that you get with Haskell. What was that like? Was that another jump or was that still pretty natural based off your other music theory background that you were talking about with roughly category theory, but not quite and the similarities in there? Or was that something that you had to make a little bit of a jump to? And then once you got it, it kind of clicked and you were able to see it in retrospect. So a, a little bit of both. So when I first started with Haskell, I had been told this is notoriously difficult. So I immediately had to learn it. Um, uh, and as soon as I got in, you know, I didn't even realize at the time that there was this, you know, sort of categorical bridge between this completely unrelated field that I enjoyed. I just noticed like, oh, 
wow, I can spend a lot of my time structuring my code and my types. That's cool, right? I have all of these invariants now. I have all these pieces that are normally in motion that are locked down that I don't have to worry about anymore. My type system is not getting in my way. It's helping me express, you know, bending my brain around even concepts like an applicative functor early on was challenging, but a good challenge, right? You know, I sort of the the point in looking at a lot of this stuff is to find new and interesting ways of looking at the world, looking at programming, and seeing the the different ways that things can work. And I guess for me, the the draw in Haskell is that it's once you get over the the initial couple hurdles with different abstractions, things become almost crystalline. That it's you're working on you know these high levels of levels of abstraction your code becomes very reusable it becomes very clear what it's doing in a lot of haskell code you can pretty much just look at the types and be like oh that's kind of what it does it it doubles as documentation unless you're looking through the lens library but that's that's another story and it's uh i think it was that those levels of abstraction that really felt similar to me to the music theory background of thinking like okay well this is going to this is some higher order function, and it takes these specific kinds of things. And, you know, it's just even, again, just from the type signature, it's going to work in this roughly this way. And then I can use that in all of these situations. And that seemed really cool. And then started to dig into some of the math side of it as well. And just being like, oh, wow. So this has, you know, really deep theoretical underpinnings. I feel like I'm writing, you know, in, in big scare quotes, correct code. When writing tests, I don't have to test this huge section of possible cases that I would, would have to, to worry about otherwise. You know, these aren't ideas that somebody just sort of, I, I suppose they are ideas that somebody just came up with one day, but they've been, you know, battle tested and proved and over the years that. It feels like it's good, well-grounded, well-founded programming to do. Um, but that being said, those are a lot, of, a lot of my personal background and biases coming into it, right? I can definitely still appreciate, say, closure, for sure, much the same way that I can also appreciate, you know, fourth, right? I would say that I developed a, an interest in programming languages in general, but the functional languages probably just because the way that they like to be explicit about a number of things is attractive to the way that my brain works. So so you're digging around in all these languages and you're making this. And at some point, you decide to set up the Vancouver FP group. Mm -hmm. Was that you were already encountering people out there that were kind of in your area that had this interest? Or was that kind of a am I the only one out here? So let me put a stake in the ground. That way someone can see me. Like, was that you knew people were already there and you could get this? Or was that more of the experiment of, if I put this out there, maybe people see that this is out there and I can meet others? Again, a, a bit of both. The initial idea for it came because in Vancouver, we have a, you know, a closure meetup and a Haskell meetup and you know all of these individual languages. And I knew just, you know, organically, a few people who were also into functional programming, who were playing around with a few languages, and a few languages that just weren't even covered. So having a meetup where you could go in and discuss Agda or Idris or OCaml seemed like 
a missing need because there, you know, there are definitely OCaml people uh, in Vancouver that just don't get to give talks about their interest. And then on the other side of it too was teaching and mentorship. Right. So I know a number of people who have an interest in learning functional programming in general or doing some more functional techniques in JavaScript or in whichever language, that building a community where, one, we don't get just totally siloed into one language, right? So I, you know, I can't spend my entire life in Haskell as much as I'd like to. I'd like to also talk to the people doing functional programming in Swift. So we can get this breadth of experience and see the commonalities between these languages and what's offered by other languages become a little bit more polyglot. And then also to provide mentorship and direction to people who are coming into functional programming for the first time, finding what sort of, you know, just in the same way that Haskell scratches my brain, see what scratches their brain. And we've actually wound up with a lot of this cross mentorship, right? A lot of people who, you know, will say come from closure background, now learning Haskell, right? Which is really cool. And then the other part of it too was it seemed there's this thing that developers in general do, you know, they'll, they'll run into each other and they'll just kind of try to figure out where they basically figure out each other's CV, right? Like how much of this do you know? How much of that do you know? And wanted to create a, you know, just an open space where it would be okay to say like, hey, this is a thing I learned last week. Isn't this cool? To encourage people to keep learning. One of my friends was just learning functional programming. She really heard about this monad idea, didn't know Haskell, just wanted to understand the concept. So we built some monads in Ruby. And then she gave a talk on doing monads in Ruby, which is really not idiomatic, but hey, it works. And she, she gets the concept now, which is awesome. And then it's also been really nice, too, to connect with some of the businesses in town that are doing functional programming as well. We have Unbounce. They do a lot of closure, for example. We also have Hootsuite, and they do Scala as well. Though I don't think that we've had a Scala talk yet, but that would be nice. I should, I should go and do that. So, yeah. So that's kind of, uh, kind of what we've been up to. So apparently Vancouver's got a really, really good community of developers that are actually interested in functional programming. So it sounds like it wasn't terribly tricky to get that up and off the ground and say, hey, anybody here? you were able to kind of tap into that existing community pretty readily then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The first meetup that we had, it was very just super casual. We wanted to see what people were even interested in. So we just put a notice up on meetup, booked some space in a cafe. And I think it was like 35 people showed up just the first day, right? And we had given them maybe two weeks notice. So there was definitely a lot of interest. It's been growing pretty steadily. Uh, We've been around for just over a year. I think I just got the the one-year anniversary notice for a meetup a couple of weeks ago. And we're just under 600 members right now. And that's been, the growth has been relatively linear, which is, which is cool. Now, I'm, I mean, for, you know, those people listening who don't go to meetups, they're, you know, we have almost 600 members. That doesn't mean that 600 people are showing up, right? We'll, we'll see maybe, uh, Depending on the talks being given, somewhere between you know fifteen to fifty people will actually show per event. We tend to get a lot more people if we're holding a workshop, for example. And I think the reason that it's been able to grow so much and so quickly is people are bringing their friends, right? So you have somebody who's really into functional programming; they're giving a talk, and they'll they'll bring their you know their six friends with them, and then those six people sign up. You know, and we we see them again 
next month or, you know, a couple months down the road. We've had a few people giving talks at the, the very general um, event that I uh, also help run, uh, Code and Coffee. A few people have talked about functional related topics there, and that, that also definitely helps pique people's interest. And then, of course, React.js is getting a lot of people interested in functional programming right now. So I, I actually think that functional programming is becoming a bit of a hot topic, which is fantastic. You know, this might be, uh, and I know it's always dangerous to say this, but this might be the year of functional programming. We'll, we'll have to see. And it sounds like there's actually a decent number of companies out there that are actually using it in their work as well, instead of just having a community of people who are interested in it. Is that accurate? So I would say that Unbounce and Hootsuite are the two big ones. We definitely hear about other companies using functional programming, especially Scala and Erlang, right? But it's not like, you know, every second shop that you go into in Vancouver is using functional programming, you know, uh, far from, sadly. But there's definitely a lot of support, especially from those, those two big players to foster this environment. We hold our events at Unbounce. They provide us with space. They help promote our events internally. They're teaching their staff all sorts of stuff. So they're using Clojure primarily, but they have a Scala learning group, which is incredible. Some of their, their top leadership are really into functional programming as well. They were playing around with PureScript, right? I don't know if it actually wound up in their code or not, but that's cool, right? So even though it's not hugely common in Vancouver, we do have some very strong companies that have an interest in it. So that definitely helps. Part of that was just trying to get at the picture of, are these people just who are interested and excited about this and don't even have the chance to use it when you have these 600 people who have signed up and potentially 50 people showing up to a meeting? And these are all just people who are just excited and enthused about functional programming. Or are these people who are like able to go and actually do this full time and take advantage of it? And it's a community of people who are actually doing this versus just being interested in learning? So this is not from a formal survey or anything, but I would say it's about probably around a third of the membership showing up are doing functional programming full-time. A lot of the Clojure people are, some of them run their own businesses and are using Clojure, some of them as consultants, right? Some of them are coming from, from these larger companies that are using it. But probably, yeah, more, more than half of the people showing up are doing this more on the side as, I don't want to say hobbyists, but as enthusiasts for functional programming. So it's, there's definitely room to grow for sure in terms of being able to do it full time. And it seems to be the want of really everybody showing up would be to, to do this for their day job all the time. So this old idea that, well, if we search for functional programming, we won't be able to find developers. I can debunk that right now. That is not true. You'll have so many people applying. Yeah, people definitely want to do this. So, yeah. And the reason I ask is we have a general functional programming user group here out in the DFW Metroplex, but the number of companies that I've even heard about that kind of touch it, it sounds like it's mainly closure. Some people might be sneaking some F-sharp in in the .NET shops maybe a little bit of Scala, but it sounds like a very, very minor thing, which if you're having a third of the people that might be even having jobs where they get to work in this even informally, that still seems like a great community response of having people rally around and have the experience of learning from people who are actually putting these in and experiencing things like 
How do I deploy this code? How do I maintain this on a release cycle? What are some of the things that you get when you're actually putting this on an app that gets hit at a certain level versus just the enthusiast? I'm doing this. I've put the site out, but I'm doing this more for learning and experience, but I don't actually get those hard earned lessons from the user group, people talking about it. Yeah. So we haven't had a talk about, actually, no, that's completely a lie. We have had talks about scaling with, uh, with certain technologies, mostly closure again, but yeah, I have to agree with you. I, we feel very, uh, I guess I can't speak for the entire group, but at least the organizers feel very lucky to have enough people to, you know, sit around a table and start swapping ideas on how to solve a real world problem in, in their language of choice which is great, right? You know, uh, that's something that we see at a lot of the other meetups, but sometimes not so much. You know, a lot of meetups are, you know, you just go show up and listen to a talk and go for a beer after and then you're done. Yeah, we, we definitely have that level of support in the more common languages, of course. Though I have to say, I'm very happy to hear that you guys have more F-sharp going in your area. I don't think that I've run across somebody in Vancouver yet who's using F-sharp in their day job which, you know, I haven't looked at F-sharp too deeply, but it seems really cool. Like that's a lot of features together on one package that I find very interesting. So we should definitely, actually, now that I think about it, maybe we should have a F-sharp and Scala talk. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Yeah, the F-sharp seems interesting because it's the way you get your ML language on the .NET platform. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, F-sharp is the way you essentially sneak those lessons in in your .NET environment. And some of them may only be doing it for the testing ability for that. But the people I've heard about that use it peripherally are like, yeah, this is pretty nice when I get to use it, even if it's only for writing our acceptance test or whatever kind of testing we're using. So you've got the community, you've got all these different communities, you've started digging into Elixir, as we talked about at the beginning, and you take this big swath of all these languages. So as you get this language enthusiast mentality on and you're digging into languages, what is your strategy for picking up these languages and digging into them? And how do you go about picking up all these different languages? Because just in the short time, it sounds like since we last talked in in your stuff, you've actually looked at and got experience with a whole bunch of different languages. What are some of your strategies for actually digging in and actually learning and understanding these languages and finding something to use and do with them? So you can start to learn them. Typically, and I think this is how a lot of people end up starting with, with uh, a language is they'll read a book on the topic. So generally read, I have a Safari books online subscription. So I'll read something on the bus in bits and pieces and on my lunch hours and, and on the weekend. And then as soon as I feel comfortable enough, maybe even before I'm done with the book, uh, try to build a little project. And preferably something that's, you know, for the first project, something that's, you know, really idiomatic in that language, something it handles or is supposed to handle really well. And ideally something that I've built in another language before. So I have, you know, some idea of the problem space and how it's going to differ to see the differences. And then if I like the language still, because, you know, there can be an adjustment period, right? If, if I decide that I want to go further with it, I'll try to build something a little bit larger with unit tests and maybe something that it's not as geared towards, right? So in a totally pure language, building a brain interpreter, you know, basically getting a, writing a little Turing machine is one nice little project. Another thing that I like doing now that I think about it is a website called exorcism.io. And it's just these little 
little projects, you know, they're, they start out with stuff that's pretty much just uh, fizz buzz and work their way up. And you do the same exercises in multiple languages. They might be in a different order sometimes, but there's, I think, maybe roughly 70 or 80 of these and in maybe ooh, 12 or 15 languages. So you can go through them and do them all in Ruby or Go and then go through and do them again in Haskell and OCaml and Closure and Common Lisp and a lot of functional languages that are in there. In fact, I think Haskell has the largest number of exercises available. And then what it does is it makes your code available to everybody else who has completed the exercise and they can nitpick your code and say, this is not idiomatic. Have you thought about doing it this way? Or, you know, that's a great solution. Great job. And so because you get this peer review with people who have, at least in theory, a fair bit of experience with it, you get better faster. It's like peer programming is a great way to learn, right? This is getting your code review. And yeah, so I, I found that really beneficial and really helpful. And then also taking my code to the meetup and having somebody who knows more about an area just kind of look over a couple lines of code that I'm finding challenging and seeing if they can help me out. I find that part of my interest in these languages is learning how to do things idiomatically in that language, you know, to see how I'm supposed to think in that language. And so even though I'm going to default pretty much all the time to what I know the best, taking it to somebody who thinks that way in that language and saying like, is this the right way to do it? Like it works, but is this how it's supposed to work? Can be really super helpful. It's like adding jet fuel to the learning process. So I wasn't sure if it was, you had your standard set of go-to problems or you always try and just find something new and tackle it completely new. But it sounds like you got a standard few sets of problems you can try and pick from that you just compare and contrast. And one of the reasons I kind of question that is you mentioned you starting your consultancy robot overlord, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I know some of the stuff that you're putting out and you're putting out with them are kind of cross-pollinating these ideas across languages. Like I saw one of the monad higher order stuff that you're starting to do and take some of that examples and put that into Elixir and bring those ideas and concepts in. So that was part of the learning strategy. I was wondering at is do you start feeling in and saying, okay, well, how would I take this other stuff and fit it in or vice versa? So where does some of that come from of that cross-pollination that you talked about earlier and some of the stuff you're doing with adding libraries for this kind of stuff and things like we're doing the monad in Ruby, et cetera, et cetera. How does that kind of play in with that learning style? Yeah. So I tend to like to find the similarities between things just in general, just in life. And so one of the things that I really like about these patterns like monads or, you know, functors or whatever is that they're, they're just that. They're design patterns, really, right? Yes, they're this mathematical tool, right? But they're design patterns and there's no reason that you couldn't use them in another language. And so what I was mentioning before in my learning, you know, I'll usually try to do something, you know, first really idiomatic, and then I'll try to do something that sort of breaks the model to kind of see where the boundaries are. That's kind of what I'll often end up doing. So, you know, trying to do more Haskell-y type code in Elixir or in Clojure, or there's no reason why in Haskell we can't have an actor model, which I believe there, there is a package for. I just haven't actually used it. So we can get all these solutions in all the languages. They might not be as idiomatic or be as robust solutions because they don't have the history behind them yet, but it's, it's entirely possible to do them. So the package that you alluded to, Witchcraft, 
which lets you do, you know, functors, applicatives, monads in Elixir, really came out of this curiosity more than anything about, okay, so Elixir has all of these, you know, really cool tools and it's fault tolerant and, you know, soft real time and we have pipes and, you know, all of this cool stuff. Can I do these higher levels of abstraction? And so something I started thinking about was like, okay, so in Elixir, I end up thinking not all the time, but sometimes a little bit more operationally than I would like to, you know, like do this, then this, then this, then this, then this. Would it be possible to do something more abstract? So I started thinking about even pipes as almost a a horizontal dimension to my code. And then the abstraction is a vertical. And there's no reason that I can't have something off in the top right corner doing both. So was it even possible to do these in Elixir? And turns out, yes, (laughs) yes, it is. Uh, It needed a little bit of bootstrapping to get there. So that spun off a couple other libraries just when my utility library got a little bit too big to do things like currying in Elixir, which became very, very handy, very handy later, but it sort of breaks the Elixir model. So in Erlang and Elixir, the arity of a function, the number of arguments it takes is very important. It's part of how you identify which function to run. And if you have, you know, currying or partial application, well, you no longer have that. So it also poses its own challenges because it's not really built to do that. But using some of these facilities as internal tools in the library, I mean, these libraries are only, what, six weeks old, you know, shouldn't break the model too, too much. So actually, if anybody is listening to this and they want to take a look at it, play around with it, give me feedback on uh, if, if it breaks the model too much, I would, I would absolutely love that. So. so that's bringing some of these ideas to Elixir as you're starting to pick up and work with Elixir and integrating them from Haskell. So before we kind of go on to some of this other stuff, I'd like to flash back to your JavaScript. So you started with JavaScript. You had this way of working. What does your JavaScript look like now when you have to start doing your JavaScript? <laughs> are you actually using JavaScript? Are you doing stuff with PureScript or ClojureScript? Or what does it look like when you have to go back to JavaScript if you're actually using JavaScript itself? Yeah. So right now my day job is with a company called MetaLab. For those who don't know us, we're the company that got hired to build Slack for Slack. And I spend, you know, it's a very design-focused agency, which is fantastic, but that means I spend a lot of time in JavaScript. And so we have a number of people that have an interest in functional programming in the company, in the project that I'm working on. And we're using React as well to structure our code. And so, you know, a lot of our pull requests comments start looking like, you know, is there a way that we could make this more pure? You should be using more constants here instead of making this immutable variable. Making sure that we're handling things declaratively as much as possible. So the JavaScript that we're writing or that I end up writing on the side definitely shows the influence of functional programming generally, for sure. Like, absolutely. You know, we're even looking at doing things like in Redux, which is a very Elm-inspired framework built on top of React. There's some discussion about, you know, how do we make stores composable, right? Just just completely composable. How do we keep state out of our workflow? Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you know, there's this, this feedback cycle where all of these great techniques and these great ideas have been making their way into JavaScript, you know, ES6, ES7, the, the new versions generally, right? But then it's nice to be able to leverage them in JavaScript, modern JavaScript these days too. So yeah, definitely has an influence. And have you pulled in, maybe not 
quite at work at the level if you're having a bunch of people who are more unfamiliar with functional programming, but have you started pulling in anything like any of the JavaScript libraries like Immutable JS or Ramda or some of the Fantasyland stuff where you're starting to pull in some of these more Haskell and ML and stronger functional programming inspired, or is it just more of the discipline from making things pure and immutable where you can and using React as that stepping stone? So on a day-to-day basis, it's definitely using React as a stepping stone idea, right? There's been a fair bit of discussion, or at least there was earlier in the project before we locked in our technologies, about using immutable JS and Ramda and some of these cool libraries. At minimum, we're using Lodash. So that's, you know, basically underscore. So at least we have a lot of the, the basic utilities, which are nice. But unfortunately, most of the people that don't have a functional programming background, it might be a bit of a learning curve, one, for them, because it's it's a fairly large team that we have working on this one project. And then also, Immutable JS wasn't compatible with one of the other libraries that we were relying on. And so while we originally were hoping to have that in there, sadly, we couldn't use it. So early on, it's like, well, maybe we can fix this. Maybe we can add another layer in between. It was just like, you know what? We need to get work done. Let's Let's just, we'll save it for the next project. So. But there's definitely a lot of interest in those libraries, for sure. And so we touched on it, but you've got the small little group of people you're working with as part of Robot Overlord. Are you taking some of those other things that you'd like to do in those cases, but actually taking advantage of them? Because if you said you're working on a little bit of Elixir with them and some closure, when you're having to deal with any front-end stuff kind of stuff, what's the balance look like? Are you able to take advantage of that because you all are more based with that idea of the functional programming, or is that still you are being cautious because any work where you're doing and sharing with others, you got to make sure that ramp up? Yeah, so we've we've definitely had to talk about that balance a number of times. We're relatively new; we only incorporated in uh, in October, so we haven't had a large number of projects that I can then draw on for experience to talk about that balance. Unfortunately, but. So if we're going in and refactoring existing code, the idea is to bring in more of these functional patterns and ways of doing things, and it helps really clean up the code, make it maintainable, make it testable, all of that good stuff. For projects where it's just, you know, like, here, build this thing, we don't care how you do it, just meet the business needs, which we haven't had that project yet, but, you know, hopefully soon. There's definitely a lot of interest in, you know, for the four of us about doing a full stack closure application or using Phoenix as well. I don't know about in other places, but there's this huge movement right now in Vancouver from Rubyists moving into Phoenix in particular. So it's we're not at the point yet where you can just you know go into a business and say like, hey, let's refactor your Rails 4 app into Phoenix. And it'll be like, yeah, sure, let's do that. But it's coming up in conversation enough that it's going to start becoming like, oh, this is that thing I was hearing about. Doesn't that have all that real-time stuff? oh, isn't that like super, super fast? Yeah, I want that for my new app. So hopefully we'll be able to use at minimum Phoenix and on sort of the outside, maybe Elm, Reagent, or Ohm. I'm a big fan of Ohm, but probably more uh, more Reagent. So Okay, that sounds good. And we're getting close to time-ish. So I want to move to one more topic and give you the opportunity to bring up anything we haven't, but one of the other things that really piqued my interest and I wanted to get you on sooner than later 
was you've announced you're doing a essentially monad nomad tour where you're going to be going and visiting a bunch of different places. And I wanted to kind of talk with you about that beforehand and would love to check back in with you after you've been doing that for a while. But do you want to give everybody a little bit of rundown about what that is and what you're looking for and your plans for that before you really kick it off? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, quite fortunate to be in a position that I can work remotely right now. And so I thought I would do the uh, the whole digital nomad thing and travel around and see, you know, where the where the wind takes me. And one of the things that I was worried about was like, well, I'm going to lose all of this, uh, you know, direct access. I'm still going to be involved. I'm going to lose direct access to all this community stuff. Well, maybe I can go and see what everybody else is doing. And so as I travel through places, I'm going to try to attend as many meetups as I can and talk to local businesses that are using functional programming or people who have been putting out libraries or even let's say that I go to someplace and the the meetup event has already happened. Maybe I can take the organizer for a coffee and just kind of see what's happening globally. So I'm going to be starting by going down the West Coast, down to San Francisco for a couple of weeks. And then the next slated place is Tokyo. And then after that, it's pretty much up in the air. I'm going to see kind of where things take me. Probably, well, I've applied to speak at a couple of conferences. So we'll see. I might wind up in Berlin possibly. I think that would be really interesting to see what's happening over in Europe. And have already bought my ticket for LambdaConf 2016. So hopefully I'm going to be able to talk to a lot of people there. I did last year. Everybody was amazing. Maybe I'll stick around for an extra couple of weeks and see what the meetups there are like and maybe travel north, see uh, how things are in Montreal or Toronto or Washington, D.C. or Florida. Yeah, but Aside from San Francisco and Tokyo, no real firm plans yet. Just kind of want to see what people are up to. And I'm going to be blogging about it on uh, Medium under the Monad Nomad. So follow me, comment. If you want me to go to a certain place and see your presentation and get feedback on a talk or something, please let me know. And I'll try to work into the travel plan. So San Francisco, Tokyo, you mentioned Berlin. You mentioned a couple of other places. Are there any places that are catching your eye now that you're not quite sure about, but if say someone's listening and is out there and wants to reach out to you, that's kind of a, you know, it'd be cool over here, but I don't know if there's anybody out there to meet up with. Here's some places that I don't know that I'll make it, but these would also be pretty cool. So if you're out there, let me know kind of places that you want to announce. Yeah. So pretty much anywhere in the Southern hemisphere, I would love to go to New Zealand, see what's happening there. South America would be awesome. For all I know, maybe there's a huge functional programming community in Argentina. I have no idea. So I think that would make a really interesting trip and, you know, get to see what people are doing in places that are not necessarily, you know, North American, English-speaking countries that I have, you know, immediate access to all the time. Yeah, I mentioned Japan earlier, but, you know, I think it'd be great to see what's happening in Hong Kong. But Currently, no direct plans to go there. But if somebody has something interesting going on in, in any of these places or somewhere else, drop me a line. And ironically, you mentioned Argentina. And I know that down in Buenos Aires, Inaka has an office there, which is part of Erlang Solutions now. And there's a number of them down there as well. So maybe either they'll listen to it and hear about that, or I can potentially put you in touch with a couple of people if that's actually something you're interested in. So, But if you're in any of those places and you want to let Brooklyn know 
We'll make sure to put some of her contact info via Twitter or however the best way is to get a hold of it and let people contact you and kind of invite you and let you know what's going on. And maybe they can time you for a conference too. Yeah, that would be amazing. So you're wanting to go through, talk to companies, talk to people. And aside from just kind of getting a feel of the culture, I'm sure, of all these different places, what are some of the goals that you're hoping to get out of this as you kind of take these places? Are there any kind of communities you're hoping to kind of get more involved with across the board or just functional programming in general? Because I know certain areas have certain hotspots of popularity. So like you go to Sweden, you've got Ericsson out there and you've got a pretty big Erlang and Elixir community. And I'm sure that you've got these hotspots of certain parts of London with the F-sharp people being based out there in and Simon Payton Jones being out there with Microsoft Research out in the UK. Is there any places that you're kind of like targeting specifically for language communities or is it just kind of open and I'm just going wherever looking for whatever and you've got no real pretenses other than just meeting the awesome communities out there? So primarily it's just meeting awesome communities. But I mean, there's a little bit of like, okay, so I know that there's a big tech community in Berlin. So I should probably go to Berlin, right? There's huge tech scene in London, should probably go to London. But on the flip side, if Simon Peyton Jones wants to go for lunch, that would be absolutely amazing. So I'm trying to keep it, you know, really, really open as much as possible. I realize that I have only so much knowledge about what's out there and that maybe there will be some small town somewhere that I've never heard of that has 100% population functional programmers, for all I know. So yeah, it's really to go out and just see what's out there. And to also, I mean, just from the the digital nomad side of things to see what it's like to live in another place and see how people live their lives or program and work, all of that stuff as well. So yeah, it's just kind of more out of a general curiosity about the world. And as you go through this, do you have a rough timing of how long you think you're going to be trying this digital nomad lifestyle that says this is probably a three or six month or year or rough estimate of how long you'd like to be doing this for an initial pass of saying when people reach out and say, hey, there's this conference out here for this, but it's going to be in November, December or January of next year or something like that. What is that? Do you have any kind of rough times for the first pass before you reevaluate and decide what's next? So I'm hoping to go at least for a year for the first run. I'm telling people that I'm leaving Vancouver indefinitely because I might wind up somewhere and be, you know, like maybe I just decide that I love Italy and I want to stay there for six months. I don't know. But yeah, I, I think I'd like to travel as long as possible. But I've also been warned by some people who've done this before that sometimes it can get lonely and sometimes sometimes you get homesick. So I'm going to try for a year and see. So that'll take us to, you know, let's say end of year 2016. But if you have an event that, that you think would be interesting in September 2017, please still drop me a line and I'll see what I can do. And that's kind of where I was getting at was just for people who may be having something come up at some point, how much they should filter out their request to you of saying, well, this is going to be, this is going to be May in 2017. So maybe we hold off talking to Brooklyn because she's only doing this for six months and then figuring out where she wants to go next. Yeah. So right now it's the sky's the limit. I of course won't be able to, you know, go to absolutely everything. You know, if there's a, a conference in Argentina one day and then the next day, something in Sweden, probably not going to make that light. But even chatting with people digitally, 
would be fantastic. If you want to, you know, share some of your experiences or the ways that you think about functional programming in general or a particular language, and you just want to get on Hangouts, that would be fantastic too. I would like to think that I'll be traveling around for the rest of my life, jet setting, but we'll see where life takes me. So again, a year for sure. After that, it gets a little bit fuzzier. But, you know, let's say anything in the next two or so years would absolutely love to hear about. So let's say to the end of 2017. After that, who knows what could happen with life. So, And I completely get that. So we've talked about a lot. We covered your Monad Nomad tour as well. And we'll get you back on in six months, a year. I'll let you reach out back to me and put that back on the schedule when you think you've got some good feedback. And if it's three months and we need to do it every three months kind of thing, we'll play that by ear and just share what's going on. But what have we missed talking about? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think we should bring up and make mention to as we've had this conversation and something has come to the top of your mind that you want to circle back around to or that we didn't think about? I want to leave room for you to be able to mention anything that we left a gap in. Nothing's coming to the, the top of my head right now. I'm sure, you know, later today will be like, oh, that's the thing I should have mentioned. But I, you know, I, I feel like this was a pretty good wide-ranging talk. So thank you. So you've mentioned kind of roughly upcoming appearances just all around. And is there anything else you want to plug or make sure the audience knows about? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is, of course, going to be mentioned a bunch of times on this podcast, but LambdaConf 2016 is happening. I'm not personally affiliated with the event, but I think that it is an amazing conference. Last year was my first time, and it was just incredible. So please support the conference. Come on down, send your staff, all of that stuff. And then, you know, I, I would be completely remiss if I didn't plug one more time Robot Overlord. We're uh, Vancouver's premier, which means only functional programming consultancy. If you need some software built and don't have to be in Vancouver, it can be anywhere. Please drop us a line at beep at robotoverlord.io. So I'll make sure to get those in the show notes and we'll come back and add some more stuff about where people can track you down and find you. But in the meantime, do you have any other call to actions for the audience that you want to ask them? Yeah, two things. One, keep exploring different areas of functional programming, right? Just because you're really into closure doesn't mean that you shouldn't pick up Elixir. You should see what's out there. And then during that experience, build some community, go to meetups, mentor somebody, take somebody who has heard about this, this crazy functional programming thing and invest an hour, hour a month with them over lunch, make it a fun thing and uh, you know, teach them some of the basics. Open source your materials and then other people can use them. We're not going to be seeing more functional programming jobs unless there are more functional programmers pushing for it at work, which we're starting to see now, which is incredible. So please fight the good fight. That sounds like a great call to action for everyone. So where can people find you online and follow along? You kind of mentioned your Medium site, and we'll get the links to that in the show notes. But what other places should people be following along with what's going on with you and apparently Robot Overlord as well, or any of the other functional programming groups you're involved with? So I'm pretty much everywhere online as Xped, E-X-P-E-D-E, -E, and it's Twitter, GitHub, Medium, Robot Overlord. Our Twitter account is HailRobo, H-A-I-L-R-O-B-O. Uh, we also have a Medium account, and now on Instagram, which should be interesting. If you're in Vancouver and area or passing through, you can find the Vancouver Functional Programming Meetup or Vancouver Erling and Elixir on meetup.com. Or if you haven't had a chance to RSVP yet and it's the day of, please just show up. 
we always have an extra seat available. So that sounds great. And I'll get all those added to the show notes so people can follow along and keep going with what you're doing as you take on this venture in the next year or so. Awesome. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brooklyn, for taking your time to join me today. I know you're kind of wrapping up and getting ready as we record this to go on and start your first leg of the tour of your Monad Nomad tour. So thanks for fitting this in. And it was great talking to you and catching up with you again. And hopefully at some point, because I don't think I'll be making Lambda Conf this year, maybe the 2017 one, we can actually bump in. Or if you wind up making your way out to Dallas for some odd reason, we can catch up in person as well. And I'll look forward to when you ping me back about catching up with what's been going on on your tour. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been a real treat and I'll I'll definitely uh, follow up as I travel. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.